Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. Charleston is a beautiful southern city, filled with good food, hospitable people, culture, and of course, great fishing. Known well for its flood tides, where sleek skiffs head out in search of redfish cruising otherwise inaccessible Spartina grass, Charleston is a paradise that has earned its attention in writings, photography, paintings, like our most recent episode with artist and beloved Charlestonian Paul Puckett. Today's guest, Captain Jake Ellington, sat down with me to discuss his waters and to help me understand the bigger picture of his fishery. We discussed flats and bay boat fishing, how to help families engage in the outdoors, the significance of bait shops and fly shops when it comes to raising up anglers, and of course, some food and fishing tips. These are the types of interviews that keep me excited to make new friends and visit new places. If you're enjoying this podcast, please help out by sharing it with friends, following us on social media, and leaving a review on iTunes. If you want to go above and beyond and be a real friend, grab some of our stickers at captainscollective.com. Thanks for your support. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. He's out there. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey, Jake, thanks so much for sitting down with us and hanging out on the podcast. Recently, I was talking with Paul Puckett, and he pointed me your direction, and I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to talk about a fishery that I've always wanted to to fish and yet haven't got a chance to, Charleston, and just all the great things that you guys have going on over there. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear about how you first got into fishing and how you eventually got into guiding. Yeah, Hunter, man, good uh, talking to you, and thanks for having me on. Got into fly fishing and, and generally fishing since I was like 10 or 12 and taught myself how to cast and fly, tie flies and kind of like the, you know, cliche generic stuff. But I also have a mm-hmm. strong background in, um, in saltwater fly fishing or saltwater fishing, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, like back in the day in the 90s, the kingfish tournaments and the stuff in Florida, like what you're used to. Um, my dad was all into that stuff. And um, hmm. then we spent a lot of time fly fishing in North Carolina and North Georgia. And the two things just kind of came together and I ended up in Charleston. And that's really kind of how I ended up where I am now. Yeah. When when for you did you kind of make that switch from... So kingfishing is it's awesome. I mean, it's a really... But it's very different from flats fishing and push pulling around in the flood tide. When did you first realize that you wanted to be more of an inshore guide than an offshore guide? 
Um, you know, the offshore stuff was always like what we did. And then I remember back and we had a place in, uh, like Amelia Island, St. Augustine. We spent a lot of summers, that area, San Fernandina Marina and all that. And when it was too windy to go king fishing, you would go red fishing. And it was kind of like something people didn't do then. And when those guys down there realized I could throw a fly rod and I was 13 or 14 years old, they were kind of like, oh, wow, let me show you, you know, there's Jack Cravall around, there's redfish around, there's sea trout. Like, you can throw a fly rod, which at the time not many people could, especially not a 13 or 14-year-old. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it was just, that was when I kind of got introduced to it. And, um, yeah, it was like they almost thought it was just like, something cool <laughs> yeah did so. you have many friends fly fishing at that age i mean no when no a lot not of us all. were 13 we were bass fishing you know all my friends i grew up in atlanta and i spent a lot of my time in in florida but in atlanta all my bass fishing buddies which is all we did was bass fish um we're just throwing regular tackle and i was always just throwing the fly rod and it was uh mm -hmm. just to me i kind of that was just what i did and they just kind of did their thing and that was my thing and mm -hmm. I didn't, I, it was, it wasn't very, uh, there just weren't a lot of people doing it at the time, but mm -hmm. it's just kind of what I, I enjoyed and what I did. Did, did you do anything career wise before you got into guiding? Yeah. Um, well I got my creds when I was, let's see, like right out of college. So like 21, um, I guess it was like 2009, 2008 and, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've guided and then done other things and then come back to guiding and then done part-time guiding. And then the last like five years has been full-time, mm -hmm. but it's been, it's been like a on and off thing. It just kind of depends on the support system you have around you at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the last five years I've been super lucky to have a great support system and, uh, you know, been been lucky yeah. to be able to dedicate myself to it the way I wanted to. Yeah, and and I'd love for you just to share because I think you, I've had several guests recently have a setup similar to this, but you know you have a, a bay boat and you have a flat skiff, and I'd love just to talk to hear a talk through on kind of how you structure your business and what different things you target and experiences that you offer. Yeah, man. Um, so when. I had my ideal guide set up in my mind. Um, one of my very best friends in the whole world, Scott Davis, had uh, the Low Country Fly Shop, which was a super cool fly shop up here. It was great. The area really needed it. He was in business for like seven or eight years. Um, and I guided for him kind of part-time to full-time and uh, just had, you know, had, had, had the one-man pulling skiffs. And... Um, then when his business shut down, it was a bit of a bummer. It was, and um, I kind of realized at that point I either needed to, you know, shit or get off the pot, I guess. And um, mm -hmm. that was when I picked up at Hell's Bay. And um, I had a 21 Jones Brothers, actually, at the time, a center console. Hmm. And that boat was awesome. Um, but the, the bay boat and the flats boat for here in Charleston give you such versatility because we can go offshore and find mm -hmm. those big redfish that are offshore that are spawning 
or Cobia or Amberjack or, you know, false albacore, um, that kind of stuff. Like, you know, we have a pretty serious offshore fisher here that mm -hmm. people can access. And then obviously you need the polling skiff to do the inshore stuff. So mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, it's good. And then also, you know, like we'd all like to just be fly fishing guides, but to carry yourself through the year and pay all the bills and, you know, do everything you, you need to take those families through the marina. Um, I guide out of Isla Palms Marina, which is a very, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's like a big resort right next to it, Wild Dunes, and it's a beach. It's a big, you know, beach town. And, you know, you got to be able to pay the bills. So getting the boat, the bay boat and the flats boat at the same time kind of helps you get those uh, bait trips to pay the bills. And, and I grew up bait fishing, you know, like I said, so it wasn't too much of a, I've, I've had to relearn how to bait fish after fly fishing for so long. It was kind of embarrassing almost to go yeah. back <laughs> and be like, well, how, how is it that I can go have like a turbo, like awesome day on the fly, but then I go out with live shrimp and I'm not confident. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and that was something that I want to talk about too, because I saw a project you did where I thought this was pretty awesome. I do a lot of live bait fishing too, and I enjoy it. There's something nostalgic to me. There's something enjoyable about the process of catching bait. I, 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 I enjoy it. Some fly guides, I, I know that they're, you know, anti that's, that's fine. That's their agenda or whatever. But, you know, you did something I thought was really cool it, and you built like actual bait tanks at your house and it seemed like a serious setup. Could you tell us about kind of how you built those tanks and how you use that for your business? Yeah. So, uh, first I wanted to say on that, like kind of just that line, um, I know a lot of fly fishermen in saltwater who think that they're, you know, and they're, they're great fly fishermen, but in my mind, you need to be able to do all of it. Um, like, you know, you, you right when I said king fishing, you're, you're like, Oh yeah, man, king fishing is awesome. And you know, you the more that you can, go king fishing or catch fish on bait or understand the whole ecosystem, the way that the bait moves, the way everything moves. So I think like if you can catch fish on bait, if you can catch fish on bottom, on top, on artificials, on fly, it makes you like a better guide. Um, Absolutely. And I tell my fly fishing buddies that and they're like, you know, they just look at me like, you know, um, for the guys who are like only fly, you know, that's fine if they're anglers, but if they're gods, you need to know the whole ecosystem. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so the, the bait tanks kind of came, um, I had a little bit of, a uh, experience taking care of saltwater fish tanks just throughout my life. So I, I understood the filtration mechanism and I had the opportunity to get my hands on some really big, um, plastic, they actually shipped fish in Alaska in these things. So they're like 150 gallons each. I put three mm -hmm. of them up together to a uh to a filtration system and i got the left one set up for mud minnows the right one set up for shrimp so it's a little more oxidized and i can actually keep it colder um than the other ones because i can get the return pump directly to it and mm -hmm. um i can i can put um frozen one gallon bottles of water into the filtration system and shoot cold water into it um and then the right one's just kind of like 
catch all. We can put blue crabs or whatever. But yeah, it was just, you know, a lot of times here we can't always get the best um, live bait. It's not like Florida where I remember growing up and there was a guy that had live shrimp like at every single marina. And here it's not like that. We're at the very top of those guys get those shrimp in Florida and we're at the very top of their, um, you know, drive or I guess, you know, logistics, you know, and by the time they get here, all the shrimp are small and they're hot. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's like, if you want live shrimp in South Carolina, you gotta go get it yourself. And so I wanted a way to, for my customers, especially in the fall where trout season goes on, but I just wanted a way for my customers and me to always have live bait no matter what. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a cool system. It's, uh, my wife like hated the project because I was underneath the house for, I think like two or three weeks straight, but it ended up yeah. being a full success. How, how long? Yeah. So it took you like three weeks. I mean, how I'll include some pictures in the blog post so that people can see this, but like, yeah. how, how big of a commitment financially and how big of a commitment time-wise is it for somebody who wants to set up their own live bait tanks? Man, if, if, if you want to learn about that stuff, go look at like, um, people and forums online who take care of fish, you know, like, uh, Mm -hmm. saltwater aquariums. So mine was like very easy because I found a guy who had these big rubber, not rubber made. They're much nicer than that. But, um, I was able to just like scan Craigslist forever. Like I knew exactly what I wanted Mm -hmm. and I knew I wasn't going to spend, I think I spent $200 on all of it where, wow, if you wanted to, like if I was, if I was going to go buy like four of those things set up like glass aquariums, like you, you could spend like two or $3,000. Um, mm-hmm. but I knew exactly what I wanted and, um, I kind of had an eye out for it. And I mean, you know, the more sweat equity you put into it, I had to redo every single seal, you know, I think I have three big tanks and what I did was I bought seven from him. Um, at $50 each, so $350, um, knowing that four of them would leak. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of like played my odds. So <laughs> when you're buying like used things from people, like I knew I wanted a three tank setup, so I bought seven. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah. So you just have to kind of, any, anytime you're uh, doing the fish tank stuff, it's, uh, you can like just, count on murphy's law yeah oh yeah absolutely but i feel like like boats well i feel like it's a really convenient setup especially when and i know this is the case for us if you're running a live bait trip right and maybe you don't have another trip for two or three days and you're looking in the bait well and you're like man i have a bunch of good bait here and you know to be able to go home and to transfer that bait into a big holding tank i think is and we'll sometimes use like holding holding pins out in the water here yeah but I'll be honest with you. I mean, you want to talk about Murphy's Law. I mean, these guys who are stealing people's traps, are it's just uh, we lost six different types of traps this year so far. Oh, yeah. Um, from holding pins to crab traps to bait traps. And, you know, I would feel a lot better with just something in my garage. And so that's definitely, I think, a cool project. How long, I mean, on a mud minnow or a shrimp, how long can you expect to keep it in there if you're running the tank well? So like the mud minnows will live there forever. Um, we always joke that 
you know, you could keep a mud minnow alive in a, uh, in a mud puddle in a parking lot of the marina overnight <laughs> if you needed to. Um, mm-hmm. The shrimp are different because they need to stay cold. Um, they like cold water and they need oxygen. So the shrimp also, shrimps don't like phosphates. Um, invertebrates in, vet- in general don't like phosphates, um, which is in our drinking water. So unless you want to grab like a really badass um, water filter system to fill up your 300 gallon, you know, bait well, which I didn't. Yeah. Um, you ha- they they only got about four or five days in there. Okay. But you know, like but if I got an, if you do it right, what do you get? Like if you if you set it up right, what are you looking at? So right, I mean, you can keep uh, mullet, um, croaker, blue crabs. And the mud minnows forever. I mean, you can keep them. You can keep them in there for forever. Um, but the uh, the sh- the shrimp. The shrimp don't like the phosphates in the water. So there's like type of phosphates removers you can use. But I mean, I don't really like to keep my shrimp in there much mm-hmm. longer than like four or five days before they start getting a little sluggish. And it also, okay. you can't overcrowd the shrimp as much as you can. You can add oxygen systems, which I'm sure you've seen those on like live wells in the boats. Yeah, yeah. So the oxygen systems will add a little bit, but I, tr- I try to keep the shrimp in there. I mean, I've probably kept shrimp in that in the, in the fall, like, I don't know, a month and a half. Wow. And, uh, but, you know... You, every time you have to keep them in there, what you what you don't want to do is keep them in there too long because if you keep them in there for a long time, you have to feed them. And every mm-hmm. time you feed them, you're adding nutrients to the system, which turns into waste, which is something yeah. you have to remove through the system. So Yeah. Yeah, it's like well, a whole I, science. My, my wife calls it the science experiment. <laughs> well, like, my, kid, my kids would love it. I'm sure oh, yeah. kids love it. Yeah, yeah, we have kids around the same age and... Uh, my my three year old daughter loves going to touch the fish. She spends a lot of time down there manhandling them. Yeah, that probably takes a couple of days off the life expectancy, but <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> Luckily, mud minnows. It's like you're not too worried about it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's better than being in the boat with sunscreen on. We have a little thing on the boat that says "No hands in the live well" because people, you know, they'll like lather up in sunscreen, stick their hand in there, and kill off half the bait. You know, right. so it's like you gotta. You got to teach her. We, we usually put them in a little bucket for her to play with because, you know, we figure we'll just sacrifice those three, you know, those poor three, you know, yeah. white baits to, to entertain her. But, you know, you, you had mentioned something earlier I thought was I, I talked to Billy Rotney, um, who's down in Mosquito Lagoon, and he's got a bay boat and he's got a flats boat. And he brought up similar points. And I do feel like there's a lot that you can learn about just certain species, like particular redfish, where all of a sudden you can fish them really, really effectively almost year round. And that allows you to go to some deeper water that just, I mean, wouldn't make any sense with a, with a fly, you know, could, yeah. could you tell me about like, what, what, what do you like for, for you with redfish? Cause I know that's a, a species you love. Like what's the cycle look like for you throughout the year? Yeah. So, um, compared to the fly to the conventional tackle, um, like I said, I, I got it, for the fly shop and was pretty much there was probably like three years there where I didn't have a spinning rod on the boat. Um, I also ran that boat without a depth finder and that was on purpose because we were only fishing shallow. Like it didn't matter. And, um, when I got back to the, 
full bait fishing, um, I like had to teach myself how to catch redfish again in more than two feet of water. And um, what I realized was that there's a lot more fish out there than I than I you know was aware of or that I, mm-hmm. than I was targeting. Um, and then that you can take that and you know we have a full six foot tide cycle here, so we have low tide, um, and then you know we have up to our flood tides, which are seven feet tall. And um, all these mid-water column fish that I wasn't targeting before that I was targeting it once I started bait fishing and stuff like that, they, they'll tell you where everybody else is. So, you know, a lot of these fish coming up on the flats and a lot of these fish that are up in the grass flats or, you know, that you can visually sight fish, they're just kind mm-hmm. of like outliers of um, big, big groups of fish. And... um you know, when, when, especially when you start getting into trying to target the bigger fish, um, you get these shots where people will say, well, you know, I'll only see a fish over 35 inches in South Carolina, like every once in a while. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, they're here all the time. It's just, they're in deep water. So if you can find Mm -hmm. those big fish, then you can find out where you have the best chance of sight fishing them. Um, Mm, yeah. So it helps your, uh, your chance to fly fishing it helps your chance to you know all that but yeah yeah and i think that makes i think that makes total sense and then another thing you know you had mentioned with the bigger boats taking families out and i always think that that's like a really rewarding thing to do i love to take my family out um it just it it becomes an easier experience for them to be able to catch fish um and i'm sure for you that you've experienced the same thing i mean I love to just try to expose my, my oldest to just different environments. Could you talk to me too, just about how do you try to, when, when you have a, a family on the boat, how does that look different than maybe if you have a, a hardcore fly fishing client who they want to push pull, they want to see them in the flood. They want to, you know, and I, I get that it's beautiful. It's incredible. But w- what does it look like to take a family out for you? What do you feel like is the most effective trip? Yeah, man, um, you, you just have to, like, change your, your mindset because when you are on that guy who, you know, has, is a fly fisherman, in quotation marks, um, or real serious about it, you know, um, you know, you have to be on your game. And, but then when you take a family out, you're, um, you know, you're, you're not an entertainer, but you're, you're there to give them the best experience they can they can have. So you have to kind of just, you know, if they want to, if you know that there's a, I deal with this with my, my 12 year old, uh, stepson all the time, there'll be a awesome redfish bite or a big tarpon bite or something that we could go. And I know that he would rather catch four or five sharks and that would make him happier where it would make Mm -hmm. me happier to go sit for these tarpon and see, four roll and maybe hook one, you know, but he would, if we caught five sharks, he would just have like the best day of his life. So when you get the families, you just have to, you know, do what's best for them and put your ego at the door. And, uh, you know, you might not come back to the dock with a, with a tarpon release or a big redfish or, you know, whatever. But, you know, if, if they want to go catch five bonnet heads and that makes Mm -hmm. them super happy, then you did your job better than, if you had um, done the other decision. So you just, yeah. you just have to read the situation and uh, 
you know, get you're at that point, you're just, uh, you know, you're providing them a good experience. And mm-hmm. that's, uh, something that I've, I was guilty of when I first was younger, I would say, well, there's a tarpon bite, you know, let's go. It's a, it's a 25 or 30 minute extra boat ride that they didn't want to do. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we didn't catch any fish. We saw one tarpon roll and they were like, what? When the, we could have, you know, caught 20 sharks and 10, 15 redfish right by the 10 minutes from the marina, they would have had the best day of their life. So, yeah. And I think that, and I, I have a lot of friends who have different philosophies and I really just feel like it's, it's, it's your business. You can build it the way you want. If you just want to do, you know, shallow water fly fishing, then you can make that decision to, to really build your business around that. But I agree with you that there is something gratifying and I do think it's more for many people and many fisheries, just more lucrative. Um, especially if you want to stay in your hometown, you know, to be able to, to do multiple types of experiences, be able to take three to four people out if that's what you need to do. And, and to me, like, I think there's certain species that, you know, we have great mangrove snapper fishing down here and and I love to do that. It's really, it's a really fun, um, it's a really fun thing to do every once in a while. It's not something I would want to do every day, but the diversity I think is, is also just enjoyable. So I definitely understand why somebody would want to build a business just around one type of fishing. And I respect that. And I've interviewed a lot of people who have done that, but I agree too, that sometimes guys who have more holistic businesses don't always get the respect they need for the fact that they've really figured out how to craft this great experience for what the customer wants, you know, and focus on them. So I think that's, I think that's great. You know, taking the family out, I think is an incredible incredible privilege and something that's really important. I'm reading a book right now called The Last Child in the Woods. It's for anybody who's interested in just thinking about raising children in the outdoors and the effects that that technology can have on them that are negative. And in the book, he talks about nature deficit disorder, but he talks about just the, the benefits of being able to go out. And he talks about a story of how he used to climb an orange tree and how throughout his whole life, he would just think of that moment and it would bring him peace and how even those small things like going on walks, climbing trees, playing in rivers and on the beach, how those things impact you over your lifetime and not just in the moment. And I know that you love to take your kids outside and and get them exposed to fishing and get them exposed to the ecosystem. Tell us about some of the cool things you do, because I've seen lots of camping and shark's teeth and wanted to hear more about that. Yeah, man. So funny you talk about a book. Um, so my father-in-law talking about children and being outside always, you know, kind of equated it to training up hunting dogs and labs. Mm-hmm. Like you never, you never want to, <laughs> you never want to, uh, leave them tired or unhappy. So we do everything, um, you know, we do everything small and, um, not tiring, so we want to keep them happy. So like the shark's tooth hunting is great because you can go find, uh, you know, obviously you do it beforehand, but you go, you know, go find a shell bank or something that has some strata of black um, fossilized material, you know, material mm-hmm. that's going to be in the 10,000 um, fossilized range. And then you just sit on that, that bank, you know, and in 10, in an hour, we'll find 20 or 30 shark's teeth. Wow. Um, or, you know, um, 
for the little little kids we just go for for rides but what you don't want to do is ever tire them out mm-hmm. make them unhappy make them hungry um because then they're gonna you know equate the boat equate the fishing equate all the things that you love with um you know things that they don't want to do yeah you want to uh, leave them happy know. yeah yeah that's what you want to leave them happy and um you know the, the lesson ends when when they're you know not happy anymore mm. um but uh yeah i mean the the 12 year old um you know james is is the man he's done a lot of cool fishing things but there can be an awesome huge redfish bite going on or you know i know that there's sick tarpon bites right offshore but it's gonna be a bumpy ride and if he just says i want to catch some sharks i'll say yeah man let's uh let's go catch some sharks Mm -hmm. because it's just kind of like customers like if you want it to keep them happy and keep them coming back, you just got to keep making them happy. And it's not about, you know, what you want. It's about what they want. And, uh, yeah, it's fun to have them on the boat. Um, I think we were, you and I were joking about how both our daughters want pink boats. Yeah. So <laughs> I think maybe, maybe my next boat might have to be pink. <laughs> you got to be known for something. But you know what? I mean, think about that. It's a compliment when you're a fishing guide and your kid doesn't think of fishing as something that pulls their dad away and they hate. And, you know, it's like, no, this is this is something I want to be a part of. I want to have a boat to me that that's a good sign. And, yeah, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of us are wired where we just kind of, you know, we get in the zone and we really want to see success. We want to, we want to catch a certain number of fish, a certain species of fish, and we can just forget the kid on the boat and how we're trying to bring them out to expose them to these things and get them these opportunities. And I think that's a great point, taking them out, um, you know, to hunt shark's teeth after a big tide or, uh, you know, just taking them on a boat ride. And you did a camping trip too. I wanted to hear about that because um, I haven't done that yet. And I think that would be a really fun family trip. Yeah, man, the, the camping trip is super cool. So we just did that with the uh, 12-year-old. The little ones really aren't ready for it yet. Um, we did it with one of his buddies, and um, his buddy's dad, I'm not really sure, knew I was a fishing guide. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of like, whoa. When we, <laughs> on the way to the spot, we caught like, you know, 20 fish. Mm-hmm. Um and just kind of had a good time, but you know, it was like, it was fun to see them, um, out here it's called Capers Island. We have our barrier islands. Um, you know, the kids built a, um, big couch or a big, like a big couch out of, out of sand. Mm. And, uh, you know, they were, they were just constantly in the marsh and they didn't really even care about fishing because we caught a lot of fish on the way there, but yeah, the being able to camp in the marsh is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be careful, at least in our part of the of the country, in the middle of the summer because it's too hot and mm-hmm. there's a lot of bugs. Mm-hmm. So really, you have to get away from the bugs. The bugs are the ones that will really really ruin, ruin you. Mm-hmm. Like I watch people every day that I leave the marina. I see people these kayak. It's a very common thing for kayakers to do which hmm. i don't really understand because kayakers I, can't yeah. take that much stuff <laughs> so it's just kind of like but i think anyone who must be kayaking must just want the punishment anyway 
Yeah, they're um, like Survivor Man or whatever the dude's name is. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just use a motor and a boat and take all the stuff you want. Um, but uh, yeah, so but they go in the middle of the uh, summer, so you know the fall is is just an amazing time. The the big bull redfish that are breeding are coming down the coast. Um, you can catch these big, big, big redfish right off the beach. Um, you can camp out there. And um, pretty much just plan on having sand in every single thing that you can possibly bring if you ever camp on a beach. <laughs> so we have like we have a we spend a lot of time in the northwestern north or the western North Carolina mountains where we have two fly shops, the Brookings fly shops, um, and we have th- two different sets of camping gear, like one set of camping gear to go camp on the Barrier Islands because those are covered in sand like where you can't ever get it out and then our rather regular camping gear but hmm. yeah. You'll, yeah you'll get sand in places that you didn't know sand could get that's that's why i currently with an infant and four-year-old going to the beach is like a two-trip thing for me which is that's <laughs> yeah. my limit you know any anything else and we're not bringing it in it, yeah sand everywhere you got to clean everything you know I, I i enjoy being i like my feet the the thing I enjoy more than sand between my toes is fiberglass under my feet. <laughs> I like yeah. fiberglass, you know. And uh, but but yeah, I'd much rather be on the boat than on the beach. And you guys like build fires and stuff. What what are a couple little things that you guys try to incorporate into that other than just catching the the migratory bull reds? Uh, yeah, you just got you bring a lot of uh, firewood. We get permits through the SCDNR. Um, for us, it's like good food. Um, you know, lots of good food. What's good camp food? Like, what, what are we talking beanie, For, beanie weenies here? Or are we talking about filet? No. Um, so the last two times that we've done it, um, one of my stepson's father is a chef. So he's brought like, um, you know, he'll be like, you bring the shrimp. So I'll go deep hole shrimp because it's the fall. So deep holing shrimp in our harbor. Do you guys use those, uh, the taped cast nets in Florida? Yeah, some people do. You know, I was going to ask you about that because I personally don't don't have a shrimp net. But, yeah, I know yeah, do. Yeah, so, so we're really into the deep hole shrimping um, thing. And we do it year-round here because we have, you know, the harbors right here. It's all deep. and But, yeah, so he, so he was like, yeah, you bring the shrimp and I'll bring the ribeyes. And, so, and then the kids don't really care. Um, you know, honestly, I bring them chick-fil-a sandwiches enough for two days <laughs> <laughs> you like because, go through the drive-thru you're like uh, i'll have uh 12 chick-fil-a sandwiches yeah no no joke it's like it's 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 a uh, tricks that i learned um when i used to work on a uh, big sport fisher boats would be like the owner of the sport fisher boat was always say you know man either you need to have dominoes or um, Chick-fil-A sandwiches to keep the crew happy mm-hmm. <laughs> because if they're not fed right, they're going to be like tired mm. and you know, that's the two easiest good things you can have. Mm. So I remember working on a, on an offshore bed that we call a lot of sailfish and blue Marlin and, you know, came mackerel and all that stuff. And the, the guy who in the bed was like, man, you're in charge of the day before. I want you to go order one large pizza and buy 10 Chick-fil-A sandwiches. And it's like, if people forget their food, if the captain gets hungry, if the mates get hungry, like, 
there's that's the easiest food ever and then you know if you bring it home someone's gonna eat it oh yeah i'm ravenous on a boat too i get hungry out there some people are like the opposite <laughs> you know my dad just barely like eats like a bird out there and i eat like my body is saying you know it's going into like fight or flight survival mode like you know and the further i get from the shore the more hungry i get so. yeah that's how i am it's funny like if i'm pulling the boat all day i'll pull a boat for eight hours and won't eat a thing or drink a thing or anything and i'll sit there and troll baits and just eat all day long and like can't can't be just completely ravenous but mm -hmm. i'm so focused when i'm on the on the platform mm. people are like hey do you want a sandwich do you want like a water or whatever i'm like no i'm like get it back up there and cast <laughs> t tell me about tell me about uh the the flood tide because i know that's the most popular thing that you guys do yeah um so it's it's a pretty technical fishery um you know it's um we have, we have like a five and a half five to six foot tide swing here um which is hard to for a lot of people to understand because it's it is really big um but then there's this strange part that the difference between a five and a half foot tide and a five eight or five nine or six foot tide is the difference between the water going into the grass or not going into the grass. Hmm. So we you know when you look over the whole ecosystem, you have all the Spartina grass, um, and you know really the Spartina grass gets two to three inches of water on a regular tide. But it's not till the flood tide comes that the redfish can really make their way up in there. And the redfish are looking for the fiddler crabs. And, um, you know, you get the five and a half, five, eight to, to six foot plus tides. Those fish can start getting up into the grass and then um, they start tailing. And that's kind of like the iconic, mm -hmm. you know, um, shot in Charleston or this part of the coast. Yeah. It's um it's 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 an amazing fishery. It's it's a, it's the fishery that people fall in love with. It's a fishery that I know people that have flats boats and you know call themselves fly fishing people for redfish and that's all they do. Mhm. Mm yeah. It's the, it's the only thing and it only comes around the full moons and the new moons. And, um, you know, only a couple times a month and it's only during about, let's say May to, to the end of October. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's super cool. The, the shots for a tailing redfish are much different than like a shot on a tailing bonefish or a ta or like a tailing permit, like a tailing bonefish is going to tail into current. So it's going to tail into current and it's going to tail in the same depth of water where a you know the tailing redfish we have you can throw to him and he might just decide oh he's gonna go right or left or do a circle mm. or go back and then go forward so there it's, it's very random it's, it's very hard to guide it's very hard not hard to fish but it's hard to get them to figure out like exactly what they're doing mm -hmm. um yeah, it's 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 very cool. Yeah, the um, the first time I fished it, and I had told you this earlier, but like the first time I fished it, you know, conceptually I understood that the tide was really big and how the tide would come in, and 
I, I understood how it all worked, but like when you see that much water moving in that period of time, that's not yeah. much different than a normal tide movement. It's, it's pretty, it's a pretty cool thing. And then also when it's time to leave, it's, it's, a. Uh, you know, it's definitely something that you could see that going wrong really quick. Do you have any funny stories of, of being out there and either yourself or, or just seeing some, uh, you know, qualified captain, if you've ever followed that account, the qualified captain yeah, moment I mean, of getting stuck out there when it when the water flushes out? So I've always had, like, dedicated flood tide boats. Um, so I've had, like, Ginus, like, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. So I've had, like, Ginus, and I've had a, a Harry Spear... Um, super custom, super light boat. That was my go-to. Those were kind of like my fun boats to go do this tide on because it's so fun. Um, and I never had a problem with those boats. Like, you know, the, the Harry Spear Glades X I had, like if I got stuck there, I could just walk it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It, It was 17 and a half feet and it was 60 inches wide or, you know, 68 inches wide. But I mean, but yeah, you, you definitely see people, um, what you know the intercoastal waterway has um shell banks on each side and people forget about the shell banks so they'll start looking around and they'll come into a creek and think they can get out of that creek and then they can't so yeah i've definitely driven around the marsh over the last you know 15 years or whatever and after a good flood tide seen people that did not make the right decision (laughs) that's a kind (laughs) way to put it that's yeah. all, that's what I would say if I got stuck with, with whoever I was fishing with. I did not make the right decision. I did not make the right decision, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's tough. Um, the flood tide is also, um, you know, after a big tide for us, because our tides fluctuate so much. I mean, a regular tide for us can be five and a half feet. We can have things up to seven and a half feet without, like, you know, really having a flooding event. And um, so what will happen is you, you'll see people who have these, like, 20 or 30, 34 foot, 42 foot center consoles, and they won't lift their um, jet dock all the way up or their, oh, or their whatever dock all the way up because they haven't been used to these big tides. And then they'll just come pick one of those boats up and all of a sudden it's gone. Yeah. Now, how does the law work there? If, if a boat is just, uh, you know, a stray boat, you know, <laughs> finders keepers? I, I wish I knew. No, um, I'm, I'm kidding. Obviously, it's not fine. <laughs> I know. I know there was a buddy of mine who had like a 36 regulator in the marsh for like, he had to wait for the next big flood tide to get it. Wow. And there was a, there was a whole family of raccoons living in it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Eating, was, eating Chick-fil-A sandwiches and Domino pizza. Eating eating <laughs> all of his Chick-fil-A sandwiches and all of his Bud Lights. <laughs> oh, yeah. From his last offshore fishing trip. That yeah, would man, be a they, hilarious photo, too, by the way. Like a, a photo <laughs> of a nice boat with just a bunch of, like, you know, raccoons hanging out in it, like, just making it their home. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of the raccoons, I know that uh, I know Paul incorporates him and in, them in his art a lot, um, which I think is just hilarious. He calls it the surf and turf. And you know they're all over our marsh, so mm. like it's not it's like you'll get you'll be pulling a a low tide creek and it's n- no problem to just come around and see a family of raccoons that really don't care you're there, which is really weird because anywhere else you know they freak out. Now what flies do they prefer? Like, do you have any trash flies? <laughs> oh man, if I hooked a raccoon, I would cut them off. I wouldn't. Yeah, I would never want to touch one of those. Things. Yeah, no, they're freaky. Um, well. <laughs> 
if it's okay with you, I'd love to uh, transition into some rapid fire questions because I, I could sit around and talk about this all day. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely want to get into some rapid fire questions if that's cool with you. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Shoot. So one of the things that, that Charleston is known for, and I talked to Paul and he gave me a recipe about what he called uh, smokra, smoked okra. And one of my sponsors is Traeger, and I work on collecting some recipes for them and everything. Um, I'd love to know, like, what? Well, give me some good Charleston food. I, it doesn't have to be barbecue. And if you have any recipes you could share, I'd love just to hear, get a good dish out of this. Yeah, man. Um, I, I have to immediately plug John Lewis Barbecue. Um, it's from Austin, but it's in Charleston. So mm. technically it's part of the Charleston, um, you know, food scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have to, I have to plug them because it's family. And then um, after I after I make that chill, um, my wife and I love eating grouper and trigger fish. Mm. Um, I, I love it. It's sustainable. Um, you know, when I was a kid, and we offshore fished a lot, we used to throw trigger fish back. You know, and uh, trigger fish is awesome. Trigger fish is sustainable. Give me a good. What, how do, how do you like to cook it? What's the what's the trigger fish recipe? We have plenty here. Oh man, uh, Old Bay, and then instead of working hard for the garlic, like I don't ever want to make my own garlic. You have to buy the garlic that comes in the like the toothpaste tube, mm-hmm. and then you buy the same thing in the toothpaste tube that is the uh, Italian dressing. You put that on there, mm-hmm. and then oven or plancha on the grill. And that's it. But for me, the the it takes a trigger fish so much less time to get to maturity, sexual maturity than than a grouper, or a. I, I don't think that red snapper are endangered, but um, I think I think trigger fish are a much more sustainable, wonderful fish than than a grouper is. Mm-hmm. Um, and sustainability is like huge for us right now. Mm-hmm. So. I could go off on a whole lot of sustainability stuff, but I'm going to spare you that. Yeah, and just we'll 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 leave it with try putting some toothpaste style garlic on there, some old bay. It's key to get the toothpaste style garlic because then you don't have to sit there. And then if you do the garlic yourself, then your hands smell like the garlic, and then your wife won't touch you later. Yep. And the rest of your days are pretty much just shot. Yeah. <laughs> See, now the, that's the types of tips that people tune in for right there <laughs> yeah no yeah. that's that's the toothpaste good. garlic um another question i have and this is a new one but i thought it would be fun is if you had to describe charleston in one word how what would you what word oh man um charleston is love to death love to death with um hyphens <laughs> yes one word love to death yeah yeah and that it seems to me like there's a great community there. And something that you had mentioned earlier when we were talking was 
you know, you got to You got to have a good support system. And you talked about when you were guiding originally that you had a friend who had lo, lo, low, count, uh, low country guide shop and, you know, how that helped you out. Talk to me about the significance of local businesses, local fly shops and how those play into the life of a of, of a fishery, a city, uh, a guide. So so I have like a pretty interesting insight in this because my family owns two fly shops in North Carolina. Um, the Brookings Fly Shops and Highlands and Cashers. Um, so Scotty opened the Low Country Fly Shop and it was it was awesome and it was super grassroots. It everybody loved it. It was like um but it it was more of a boys club than uh it was it was amazing. It it, it it's what sparked and I think what kind of maintained the um the fly fishing culture here in Charleston. Like I don't think without Scotty and without that fly shop, there would be as many people fly fishing or it would be as popular here. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it, um, Charleston as I hate to be negative, but when you said the first thing that pops in your head, love to death, it's love to death. Rent goes way up. He can't, mm. he didn't do the rent. Um, and you know, just it closed down for whatever reason. Mike Abel at uh, Hadrill's Point, they got two shops. Mike's dad opened those shops a long, 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 long time ago. Um, he's got a little fly shop attached to his big regular tackle shop. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, if I can just tell anyone listening one thing, um, buy local. Buy from your fly shop. Buy from your bait shop. I don't care if you don't like the guys working there. Um, you know, buy from them. Um, mm-hmm. They need you. Local businesses need you. And uh, I, I try not to get too intense about that kind of stuff. Yeah. But yeah. if I don't have a place to go get mud minnows in the morning, your trip that morning with your family isn't going to be as much fun because I'm not going to always be able to get bait. And the way that things are going, all of Charleston used to have nine, 10 big tackle shops. And now there's two. Yeah. Wow. And, and yeah, and you know, we have one not too far from where I live called Wilkinson fly fishing and it, the shop it's owned by Bob Wilkinson, an incredible guy. And he has that shop built into his house and they do fly tying nights and they they have a community that's built with it. And I know most shops are like that. We have another one uh, near uh, Tallahassee called Cape Harbor. Uh, we have we have some great fly shops around here, uh, Forgotten Coast uh, over in Apalachicola. I mean, the Forgotten Coast Fly Company. One of the things that I love about these fly shops is, you know, people complain all the time, culture, culture, culture. People don't know boat etiquette. People don't, you know, where are they going to learn it? Well, a great place for people to learn it is these fly shops, because whether you like it or not, people are going to fish and these become great places to develop communities where individuals are respectful. They, they know the etiquette they know. And, and so rather than being negative and taking somebody in your community and running them out of business, you can support a business and really in a way you're investing in the future. So I agree with that completely you know, rent going up, that's, it's, it's a struggle. And and that's even more reason just to, to try to support those shops in any way that you can. And, you know, buy, buy a shirt, buy some materials, you know? Yeah. Don't, don't buy it online. Go, 
go there and buy it. The other thing is that those guys, people don't realize you would walk in there and say, what's the fly pattern? Or even I want to book a trip. Who's the God I'm going to go with? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think, you know, and then they would say, oh, we'll go with Jake or go with Michael or go with Patrick or, you know, now it's like, um, there, you know, any, you could fish with anyone that says fly fishing on their website. But, um, you know, if you look at like, um, Florida keys outfitters or, you know, like any of those shops down in South Florida, um, those are the guys that when someone says, I've called three other people and they're booked. I'm like, well, dude, these, these guys aren't going to send you to somebody who's not a fly fisherman. Like if there's a fly shop in your area, a dedicated fly shop, they're going to have the good fly guides. Mm -hmm. And, uh, sometimes that's hard to find. Yeah. Well, they're putting their stamp on it and they're, they're putting their reputation out there and, you know, it's a good stamp of approval. If you go into a, a new city or you're trying to find, you know, one of the ways that I get guests for this show is I talk to people that I know and trust and then they lead me to somebody and they lead me to somebody. And, you know, I can only do so many of these podcasts a year. I'd love to do more, but I can only do so many. And that's one of the ways that I like to try to, um, try to figure out like who's serious. And, you know, this might be a stretch here. You can tell me if it's a stretch, but you know, we were talking about using, you know, bay boats and just being able to fish live bait or be able to, there's a whole following a whole ecosystem, a whole pattern of, of fish. You know, there's an ecosystem to the fishing community and you know, there's, and this is definitely a stretch, but hopefully there's a point in it. And, you know, well, young juvenile fishers, um, are going to start in these shops and you know it's a great opportunity rather than being snobby to meet them and to invest in them don't don't tell them where to go let, let them figure stuff out on their own let them see if they really want to do it but rather than you know turning your nose up to them you know you can take some of these guys under your wing to a little bit teach them how to do it the right way and to me, I think that pays more dividends in the end. And it, it's a correlation to even the way that our, our water ecosystem works. It's an ecosystem with, with the fisher, men and women in general. So um, that's, you know, I knew that your family owned too. I thought you'd have some insight and especially in cities like Charleston, how hopefully people will try to support local businesses from restaurants to marinas to, you know, all of that. What, what's the um, non-barbecue, what's your favorite restaurant in Charleston? There's a very small place in Isle of Palms, which is outside of downtown, um, you know, the marina I work at, called Cota de Peche, which uh, is actually on the beach in Isle of Palms. And it's, uh, you know, C-O-D-A. Um, I believe it's Italian. Well, it is Italian, the cuisine. Um, but that's my favorite uh, restaurant in mm -hmm. all of Charleston. And it, it's insane. It's so good. When I come up, I'm, um, I'm definitely doing that because I, I love it. It's the like the food. closest thing to actually being in Italy. They have like, uh, yeah, it's it's nutty. You have like the squid ink pasta and the mm. the meat, Frito Misto, the uh, all the stuff that, um, you know, is, is real Italian. And it's in this like little hole in the wall right on Front Beach that nobody even knows about. Mm. And, uh, it's 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 my favorite hole in the wall um but yeah other than that downtown i haven't i haven't been out downtown too much yeah uh and in daco is a place that people like to go a lot um but yeah paul yeah. paul dropped some good downtown ones um 
but yeah. Yeah, Paul lives on Paul's Paul's office is downtown, and he lives on the other side of downtown than I do, and he's down there a lot. Like I live out on Sullivan's Island, so I'm like a good 20 minutes from downtown Charleston. Mm-hmm. So um, there's High Time on Sullivan's Island, and um, the Obstinate Daughter, which I think both of them are like, you know, pretty fancy. They've been written up a lot, and um, specifically Obstinate, Obstinate Daughter. If you want to go there, you got to call like five weeks or five months ahead. Wow, it's crazy in Jeez. June and July. Yeah, they 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 got written up by somebody and it popped off. Jeez, man. My next one is, and I love asking this question. If you could go back to yourself when you were 13, 14 years old, and you're you're throwing the fly rod, not many people around you are throwing the fly rod, and you could give yourself some advice, knowing what you know today, what advice would you give yourself? Man, I'm not sure I would do anything different because um, I was like, I I, enjoy, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I was I was hammering it. I uh, I didn't fish regular gear. Like I just threw the fly rod, and to me it wasn't a like now people say like oh well like you know fly or die or you know I won't you know uh, it doesn't count unless it's on fly. And for me, it was just uh, my preferred method of fishing. So it wasn't like a thing where I proved it to anyone, or um, there was any there was there was no one else around. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the only thing I would have changed would have been to you know spend spend more time in the salt because when we were in the salt. Um, the only time I ever, you know, uh, did did the fly in the salt was when I had the opportunity and the people that were around me understood I could, I had the capabilities, mm-hmm. and you know it wasn't because you, you, you know they didn't expect a thirteen year old walking on their boat with a ten weight. They were kind of like, well, um, let's catch let's catch a few fish um, on on gear first and then see if the bite's good. Mm-hmm. And I, I, at the time I should have just been like, well, here, watch, watch me lay down some line. Mm-hmm. And, and then they would have, if like, if that was me as a guide and I had, you know, I had a 12 year old walk on the boat and I'm going to go Jack Craval fishing or tarpon fishing or whatever. And this guy, this kid brings this, you know, temple fork outfit or 10 weight. I'm like, Oh, okay, dude. You mm-hmm. know, I, I would have uh, I would have been more assertive mm-hmm. on some of the stuff I'd I'd been. Mm. My my last question is, um, you know, you you have three kids now. You have you know you're running a a business that has a lot of multifaceted approaches that you can do, um, plugged into the community. For you, when you think about long term, you know, future, what does success look like for you? Wow. Um, man, success for me looks like, uh, conservation. Like I, I want, uh, I want my girls to be able to have the same ecosystem to play around in and to enjoy that and see the same birds and, you know, see all that stuff that I, that I saw. And, Mm. um, that's uh that would be success for me 
because um, I, I just wanted to see them um, be able to experience the same things. Like if down the road the Rosette Spoonbill or you know the whatever else like wasn't coming to South Carolina anymore, or the tarpon weren't coming, or the jack or ball weren't coming, or the billfish had you know we we we've already lost our tuna, which is you know terrible. Um, but, um, you know, really, I think, I think conservation and getting other people involved in conservation and, um, having our ecosystem being as healthy and productive now as when my children are my age, that would be a, a huge success for me. Mm. And, and I guess I got a follow up to that. I thought that was a great answer. What do you feel like is the most important thing? the key to trying to see generations live that out and, and to embody that as well? Um, you know, I, I, I like to say that it's, um, just telling them about it and it's like a, um, like me and you thing, like, like I'm sure that you don't like plastic. Like I don't like plastic and I'm sure you recycle without knowing you really personally. Um, but really it comes down to a reform and change in um, the way that we create energy. Mm -hmm. um, fossil fuels and change the, um, you know, the pH of the ocean and plastics are the two mm -hmm. main things. And then if we're not reliant on fossil fuels, we're not reliant on... Um, you know, offshore drilling. And then you kind of have this like kind of trifecta of if we're not reliant on oil, then the oceans are healthier. Mm. So that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. I know it's not, I know it's not perfect. And I know that there's a lot of people that disagree, but um, well, it's, there's so many different things that people say it's hard. It's overwhelming. It's hard. It's heartbreaking for me to even try to keep up with all of it. But, you know, back to that book, the last kid in the woods um, or the last child in the woods, he was talking about how today kids know about all of these environmental issues without knowing about like having firsthand experience in environments. And he was saying when he was a kid, he didn't know about deforestation, but he knew about the forest behind his house. And now we have kids who they know all these things, but they don't have that personal connection. And I think that ties full circle to taking your kid out on a walk to look for shark teeth on a camping trip or to, you know, go on a boat ride and to make them fall in love first with, with what we're trying to protect. Because I think that becomes an issue with voting. You know, it's hard, you know, all, all these captains and guides, they want to see, you know, captains for clean water down here is doing a great job. They, we want to see people join the fight, but if they don't share the love, they're not going to join the fight. And I think that, you know, it's a it's a multiple approach but you're doing a great job with that and thanks for hanging out with us today and, and sharing and i'll make sure to include some links so that people can follow you on the blog post yeah man i'll make sure you get those and uh yeah i, I really enjoyed uh talking to you today and uh thanks for all the time and thanks for uh talking to the bros in charleston we uh we we, we like uh sharing sharing our ecosystem with the uh the guys down in florida absolutely man and i uh i was supposed to be in person and uh <laughs> and and i'm glad that we were able to make this happen hey jake thanks man Hunter, i appreciate it man thank you so much
Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective.